I invite you in your Bibles to turn to the second chapter of the book of Hebrews as we continue this series entitled Persevere, Exhortations from a book that, as the author concludes, he calls it a brief exhortation, Um, and we know that this is a needed book, a needed message. One thing we love about the Bible, and uh, the book of Hebrews will tell us uh, several chapters from now that it is a book that's alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. What that means is though it was written uh, millennia ago, two millennia ago, uh, it's been relevant for every age and every culture since that time, and none more than ours today as the need to persevere is great. We're troubled by the findings of recent statistics and surveys that show the state of theology in our country, and we've rehearsed those. Won't go over that again. Uh, But you'll notice, uh, strangely, as you drive through Indianapolis, that it seems that there's a church or some uh, religious organization every other block. I pass about a half dozen on my six-mile drive here from home, it seems like. Um, And in 2015, Business Insider did some research to find out which city in America, which top 20 cities, had the most churches per capita. Guess what city is number one on the list? Indianapolis, with one religious venue for every 289 people. We have missionaries come through here and talk about how if they go to the field that they're on deputation to head toward, that they might be the only gospel preaching ministry among thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. But here in Indianapolis, and these numbers are five years old, but uh, 834,000 inhabitants, closer to a million now, uh, 2,892 religious institutions here in Indianapolis. So with 20% of the people in our city claiming no religious affiliation, and many more than that that claim an affiliation but don't regularly attend anywhere. Uh, You can see why the congregations are sparse as you drive by many of those and see a few cars in the parking lot. We have more churches and less Bible knowledge uh, than maybe uh, many other cities throughout the world. And so we see that uh, there's a need to persevere. And because there's that, just so many, as you pass these churches, you notice the signs say different things, different uh, religions, different um, denominations, some of which you're very familiar with, some you might drive by and scratch your head and wonder, what in the world do they teach there? And so it's very important that we have a firm founding, a firm footing in scriptural knowledge, in our faith, and so that we persevere in that faith and that we should be ready to give an answer to those who ask a reason, because those in our, our city notice this too, that these organizations are everywhere and they're of every stripe and variety that you could imagine. And so uh, they'll be confused. Well, where do I find the truth? And so we turn to Scripture. And it's in the book of Hebrews. We saw in the first few verses that it's worth it to persevere because Jesus is worth it. Number two, that believers should persevere in their faith because Jesus is better than the angels, verses 4 or 5 down through the end of the chapter. And then last week, we saw that we should persevere in our sure and finished faith lest we slip away. And in the first four verses there of the second chapter, the writer of Hebrews warns us 
about the danger, even as he, as a believer, writes to predominantly a group of believers, he warns them that we ought to give the more earnest heed to what we have heard, lest at any time we too might drift away. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And so last week we looked at a passage uh, preview of those first four verses. And what I'd like to do this evening as I've prayed to you through how to use the time tonight is just to look back at that just from a different angle to reinforce some of those very important doctrines that we take away from chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4 and use about half of our time to look back at that and get very well grounded there so that we can handle that uh, scripture uh, as needed, have a mastering hold on, on uh, how to use that, and then look at a passage preview of the next paragraph in uh, verses 5 through 9. Um, so we saw three false teachings that can be corrected by this text. Number one is that unlike those under the law, we don't face harsh consequences for sin. Well, the writer of Hebrews is going to dispel that view that many are clinging to today that celebrate an age of grace and that we're in an age of liberty. And so we don't fear severe consequences like those who broke the Mosaic law might have to fear. But the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us that if that law that they followed a law that was the word of God but was mediated through angels, how should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation that was mediated to us through the divine son? And his point is not that the Old Testament is not God's word. No, chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us that it was God who spoke in those times past in various ways. But if the mediator of this second covenant is superior to the mediators of the old covenant, then we should pay closer heed. We should not tread lightly. We should not lightly break the instructions. We should not lightly stray from the lifestyle that the New Testament calls us to, a very high bar that as we look around and compare ourselves to others could feel comfortable in falling short of that bar as long as we're fairly decent people. But the writer here tells us to wake up and warns us to pay closer attention because how should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Well, number two is the false teaching that we correct in this text is that the false teaching that God continues to speak new messages to us after the Bible. Of those uh, 3,000 some odd religious institutions here in our city, many would teach that God continues to speak through to us after the Bible, either a uh, few centuries after the time of Christ, or as recently as the last couple of centuries, or in an ongoing sense in churches today all around the world. Number three, that healing, tongues, apostleship, and revelatory prophecy are for today, in keeping with that second point, that we can expect fresh revelations from God in our meetings if we are filled with the Spirit. And I hope that you're not um, 
weary of going back through these things. I hope you're not anxious by taking a very deliberate pace through this book. If you did the calculations and noticed that we spent four weeks in the first chapter and maybe you calculated and charted it out and know that we're on pace to be in this book for over a year. That it said you would just really dig in and say, okay, Hebrews is going to be my friend here for the next uh, many uh, weeks and months, and, and I want to gain an intimate knowledge of this book to be able to use it for applying in my own life or strengthening my own faith, lest I slip away, lest I neglect that salvation so that I might persevere and so that I might help others. Because as you look at those first four verses and those three false teachings, many of you even came last week already with a firm hold on those three. None of those three were really something that you struggle with. And so after last week's service, maybe you had a really, really firm hold on it. Yes, I've got it. But as we look back to it tonight, I want to challenge you to be able to get such a grasp on these doctrines that we learn from these verses that you would be able to teach it to someone else. Because that is going to be more and more needed as our culture grows more and more into a post-Christian culture and as false teachers and false teachings wax worse and worse. Many of us will encounter either at your front door, in the cubicle next to yours, at the house next door, or even within your own family, an extended family, those who are confused in one or more of these areas, and we have to be ready to give an answer. We have to be well-versed in Scripture to be able to clear up confusion and speak the truth in love to uh, learn scriptural doctrine so that we can be equipped to do the work of the ministry and teach others also. Years ago, one of our teens who has since graduated and moved out of the city uh, asked this question at youth group. She said, I have cousins who go to a church and they're taught in such a way that They believe they can and should go into a store and approach a stranger and say something like this, Sir or ma'am, God has revealed to me that you are in a time of special need right now, that you are facing something really severe in your life, and so I have a special message from God for you, a message of hope. And since uh, this student knows that we don't teach that kind of revelation, that kind of um, uh, divine, um, something like what maybe Philip experienced when he was told to go join himself to the chariot of the Ethiopian representative. And so she said, "I, I feel like that's not how God speaks to us, but I don't really know how to talk to them about it. And maybe you're there with someone that you know that feels that God is still revealing things to us today, or maybe that God revealed things to Joseph Smith in the 19th century, to Ellen G. White in the 19th century, those in the Seventh-day Adventist church, those in the Mormon church, those uh, who uh, believe that the Watchtower magazine in the JW church, I'll call them churches generously as a courtesy, and How many of you, I wonder, know someone, you are connected to someone already 
who in one of these areas needs some scriptural correction. And you wouldn't mind raising your hand to say, yes, I know someone who believes in ongoing revelation or uh, is confused about some of these issues. Okay, and if you don't raise your hand to that, I uh, would suggest that a high percentage of us will at some point encounter this and God would draw on our knowledge to be able to share with them if we have a good grasp on this and are well-versed in it. So I want to really caution you about saying things like we can uh, maybe hear often and start to say maybe casually things like, well, God told me to quit this job and start this business. Or God told me to join this church or to pursue that relationship. Or God told me that you need this special gift today. And I'm not denying that the Holy Spirit does lead in our lives. And as we prayerfully submit to Him, He will bless us with wisdom and discretion so that we can have peace about decisions that are pleasing to God and misgivings about those decisions that are harmful for our spiritual walk. But be very careful that we don't express any idea that would support the notion that God speaks to us in some way other than what Hebrews 1 and verse 1 tells us, and Hebrews 1 and verse 2 tells us that God has in these last days has spoken to us through his Son. And we saw how that is a reference to the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus confirmed by the apostles and borne witness to by the miracles that God gave. Okay, so please be very careful about saying, God said to me this or that, unless you're referring to a passage of Scripture through which God spoke to you. So I want to look at these four verses from a slightly different angle, and that is to answer this very important question, though it's maybe already settled in your mind, so that you would be able to share it with someone else. And that is the question, how can we know what God says? Someone comes, stands up and says, oh, this is what God says for us today. Or someone says, my sacred text is just as valid as your sacred text. Why would you reject mine? That can be daunting and confusing. We have to have a method, a formula for knowing what God says. So the book starts with the assumption that God exists and that he has spoken. God who in times past, sundry times, and diverse manners, spake in times past to the fathers by the prophets. So number one, God spoke in times past, and that's clarified for us in chapter 2 and verse 2, that he's referring to a word that in a large part, this covenant was delivered, it was spoken or proclaimed by angels. And verse 2 of chapter 2 says that that covenant delivered by the angels, proved to be steadfast. Or you could write the word reliable next to that word steadfast there in your scripture. And what we see is that what God gave to Moses through the angels that the prophets followed up on in the Old Testament text proved to be reliable. How did it prove to be reliable? Verse 2 says that every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. In other words, what Moses gave to the Israelites, the test of time shows that it really was God's word. 
because those who followed that law truly were blessed in a special way. Those who forsook that law truly did receive severe consequences. And so that old covenant delivered through the angels proved to be reliable. So we look back and say, yes, the Old Testament is the sure and authoritative word of God. Of course, we're relying on the New Testament. This presupposes that we believe uh, that the New Testament and the Old Testament are true. And that's going to still help you with a large audience of confused people because uh, those that I mentioned, the Mormons, JWs, the uh, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, many of the the Charismatics, the Apostolic Church uh, from the Pentecostal Church, all of these will claim to adhere to the Old and New Testament and yet cling to uh, more recent revelations than that. So this will help you with those audiences that claim to adhere to the Old and New Testament yet look for fresh revelation and help with doubts in your own mind as they come up. Okay, so that's uh, how we know that uh, God spoke in times past, plus that word that he spoke was proved to be reliable by the consequences that followed. Therefore, equals that the Old Testament is God's authoritative word. You might have the question, and I hope as you have questions that don't get addressed uh, in the messages, that you will uh, talk to me afterward, and um, if I confuse rather than help you, um, we want to give more attention so that we have an understanding of these things. You might have the question, in what sense was the Old Covenant spoken by angels, chapter 2 and verse 2? Because when we picture the giving of the Old Testament law, we picture Sinai, that scene with the earthquakes and the thunders and lightnings and the very presence of God as he speaks to Moses and gives him the law. Isn't that seem to be how it's presented in the book of Exodus? It seems that the Old Covenant was given directly from God. But there are a few scriptures that help us to know that it was angels who mediated that law. Those verses will be on the screen for you. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen delivers his final sermon, and in that message, he refers to the Jewish audience, uh, or Jewish fathers of his audience, and says that they had received the law by the dispensation of angels. The angels dispensed that law to men. Uh, Paul said in Galatians 3.19, Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgression, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. And probably what Paul, and probably what Stephen, and probably what the writer of Hebrews are referring back to is this next verse, Deuteronomy 33 and verse 2, where it says, The Lord came from Sinai with ten thousands of saints. And the word there rendered saints, we could say holy ones, From his right hand went a fiery law for them. As the Lord left Sinai with the giving of the law, ten ten thousands of holy ones were with him. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is going to use the word angels there. He left Sinai with ten thousands of his angels. So what Moses experienced on Sinai, as grand as it is as we read it in Exodus, there was apparently even more going on there that the New Testament gives us a slight glimpse into to know that angels were uh, involved in the delivering of that Mosaic covenant. 
I hope that doesn't seem like trivia. That's important because his whole uh, string of argument through chapter 1, uh, Christ is superior to the angels, and that is important so that we pay more attention to what Christ says because if the old covenant came through the angels and the new covenant came through Jesus, then we ought to pay a closer heed. So it's important that we understand uh, that role that the angels served in delivering that old covenant. Okay, so that's number one. Shows us from Scripture how we can rely on the Old Testament. Okay, here's number two. God spoke in these last days through Jesus. That's what verse 2 of chapter 1 very clearly says. Plus, we have a clarification early in chapter 2 that that word declared by Jesus and delivered through apostles was miraculously confirmed. All right, let's look at chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4 again. The second half of verse 3 says that that great salvation, referring to the message uh, that we hold in our hands, at first began to be spoken by the Lord. All right, kids? So when Jesus was on this earth in human form, he was teaching this New Testament truth. He was telling people about how to get saved, about how the Mosaic law of giving sacrifices and worshiping at, at the temple, that that was passing on and that God was going to work an eternal kingdom that we could uh, work toward by telling others in this new organization, this new organism, the church. And so Jesus began to speak that over a ministry that spanned only a few years and a pretty small geographic location, but that was uh, augmented, dispersed by the apostles. Uh, verse chapter uh, verse 2, the end of chapter 3, says that which be, was first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So there behind me on number 2 when it says it was delivered through apostles, biblical definition of an apostle uh, requires that someone has heard, chapter 2, verse 3, the teachings of Jesus in first person. God also bore witness, we can use the past tense there by the original language, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So as these people said, these apostles said, we heard Jesus teach this, and so this is what you need to practice in church. If anyone ever said, why should we believe you? Well, the apostles were able to heal people. They were able to perform exorcisms. They were able to uh, speak in tongues that people from uh, different languages could understand what they were saying in their own language miraculously. Those were gifts that God gave to confirm the message of who? Of those that heard him, the apostles. Okay, so if he spoke to us through Jesus, chapter 1, verse 2, and that teaching which Jesus began to speak, chapter 2, verse 3, was continued through the apostles. And if God confirmed what the apostles were saying through miracles, then that equals the New Testament is God's authoritative word. Okay, what that leads us to, and this is the point that uh, those in these other uh, systems of religious belief, other worldviews, other uh, denominations or cults will uh, take issue with us on is primarily ver number three. And here's number three. God speaks to, this is kind of a mouthful, but we'll unpack this. God speaks to the post-first century apostolic pre-rapture world. All right, and that's how we're referring to what verse 
one, uh, chapter 1 and verse 2 calls these last days. That's the post-first century apostolic, pre-rapture world. God speaks, that's us by the way, God speaks to that age exclusively through those two testaments. Okay, or if I was just going to give you that point number three in very simple language, it would sound like this. We reject any message that comes after the year 100 AD. And we insist on these points because without this criteria, it is impossible to know what God has really said. Okay, so in the 1800s, Joseph Smith after he had gained a lot of momentum and uh, reverence from those that he led, was able to accost one of his female disciples and tell her, God has told me that you are to leave your husband and become another one of my wives. And since he had established a reputation with these people that God spoke through him and revealed fresh truth to him, she couldn't argue, and she became part of his, what we would call a harem. And so we have to have a criteria to know, is God really speaking to people? And Hebrews gives us that very early in the book. Okay, um, Cults and confusion, 3,000 churches in a city of a million, comes in part from a, a lack of careful attention to how we can know what God has really said. Okay, so uh, in point number three, since many would disagree with us here, we'll ask the question once again, how do we know? How do we know that God speaks to us in this age exclusively through the Old and New Testament? Well, number one, Hebrews calls Jesus' message God's word for these last days. You see that in chapter 1 and verse 2, he has in these last days spoken. That's the past tense, a completed action that takes place in these last days. So the, the inauguration of the church back in Acts chapter 2 is the first time we see that phrase used about the last days. The writer of Hebrews says that he, at the time of his writing, probably in the 60s AD, was in these last days. So question, are the last days over? No, the last days in Scripture will culminate, as we uh, study the New Testament, with the rapture, the tribulation, the millennial reign of Christ, have those things happened? No. Therefore, we are still in the last days. This is how you can walk someone through these first couple chapters of Hebrews who is confused about whether God is speaking today. Because the writer of Hebrews, just within the first two verses of the book, tells us that in these last days, and that's why we use the language post-first century apostolic through pre-rapture, Last days, church age. How does God speak to us in that age? Through his son. Through his son. So he's not going to speak to us through Joseph Smith or through Ellen G. White or through Muhammad or through the Gnostic Gospels. He has, spoke, he has spoken to us in a completed way through his son. Now that 
word continues to speak to us today through preserved and written scripture. That's why point number three is in the present tense. God speaks to us today through what he has spoken through his son in the first century A.D. Why is it limited then to the first century? Well, the definition of the New Testament message uh, is limited in that way because it's the teaching of Jesus, chapter 1 and verse 2, which he began to teach, chapter 2 and verse 3, and it was continued by those who heard him. Question, was anyone who heard him still alive in the 19th century? No. Was anyone who heard the teachings of Jesus and saw the miracles of Jesus still alive when Muhammad wrote in the 5th century or the 6th century B.C.? No. Was anyone who heard and saw Jesus alive in the late 2nd century B.C. when the Gnostic Gospels, such as the Gospel of Thomas, written decades after the death of the Apostle Thomas or the disciple Thomas, the uh, pseudonymous writing who someone claimed they were writing the Gospel of Thomas, but Thomas couldn't have written it. He was long dead by late 2nd century. All right, and so that's why, you know, most of the disciples, even by the mid to late 1st century, had been either thrust through with sharp weapons, nailed to crosses, uh, burnt at stakes, dropped in boiling oil, all of these terrible deaths that we read about in history. It was the Apostle John who was the last survivor who wrote the book of Revelation in about 90 AD. And so anything newer than that we reject based on this New Testament criteria that God has spoken to us in these last days through his son. He began to teach it and it was confirmed by those who heard him. That message confirmed by those who heard him God bore witness to that with miraculous sign gifts demonstrating the authenticity of the apostolic message. Are you following that train of thought that the first couple verses of each of these first two chapters give us so that we can know that if the Old Testament and New Testament are to be trusted, like many of these in the other churches will claim to uh, follow, that there can't be any weight given to the Gnostic Gospels in the second century, that there can't be any credence given to the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Mormon, the uh, writings of Ellen G. White, the Watchtower publications, the words of someone who gets up on Sunday morning and says, I have a fresh word from the Lord. No, according to Scripture, we can't accept that. Okay, you may think of, in your mind, a couple of exceptions, possible what might seem like an exception, Okay, if someone had to see and hear Jesus to be an apostle and to be part of this uh, revelation of Jesus' message, then what about the apostle Paul? I mentioned him briefly as we concluded last week. Well, Paul fits the criteria of an apostle having heard Jesus. On the road to Damascus, he saw and heard the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. Paul's message was confirmed by divine miracles. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 18 tells us that Paul spoke in tongues, a miraculous sign gift to authenticate his message. No one else can be an exception like Paul. So Paul says, well, I saw Jesus in a vision, so I'm 
I'm an apostle too. Well, now here 2,000 years later, charismatic teacher Oral Roberts will get up and say, I saw a vision of Jesus, and he was 900 feet tall, and here's what he said, this and this. We reject that because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8 that he was the last one to whom Christ appeared. He was the last apostle. And that's why we use this phrasing, the post-first century apostolic testimony. That's what the New Testament is. You might also think about what about John and the Revelation wouldn't John write 20, maybe 25 years later than the writer of Hebrews? And wasn't much of John's message conveyed through an angelic mediator? And so how does John fit with this New Testament criteria of what God really said? Well, here we point out that John was an apostle. He saw and heard Christ intimately. He was very close to Jesus during his earthly ministry. Again, can, can Joseph Smith claim this? He says, well, I saw God and Jesus in the woods. That's what he told his followers. As if there were two figures standing side by side, God and Jesus. Well, the Bible says no one can see God and live. The Bible says that no one, John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The Son, the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So when God wants us to see him, when God wants us to hear him, Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the triune Godhead that reveals God to us. And so you know you can't see God and Jesus in the woods. That's unbiblical. It's heretical. Paul was the last to do this. Uh, John was the last living to be able to claim this. His message was authenticated by miracles and sign gifts. Don't know exactly what miracles John did, but based on Hebrews 2 and verse 4, we conclude that John had his message authenticated to that early church audience. Number three, the content of John's, this isn't on the screen, but just so you kind of have a feel for why John's uh, revelation is uh, authentic scripture, his revelation serves to bookend everything we know about or need to know in this age. Right, so John is going to tell us what happens at the end of these latter days. And so no one needs to come along hundreds or thousands of years later and say, oh, here's what you need to know for the age we're living in now. No, because John comes and says, here's what happens at the end. And by the way, as he concludes that book, he reveals that it was ultimately Jesus who testified that revelation to him. You'll see here on the screen, the next to last verse of Scripture, Revelation 22, verse 20. And the words of Christ in red, because John says, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was the one who testified the contents of the book of Revelation to the Apostle John. And so Paul and John, though you might look at them and say, are these exceptions? No, they fit the criteria and actually prove and demonstrate for us the criteria. And I hope that those points, as we belabor those and try to ingrain those, are helpful for you uh, to increase your faith in what we hold in our laps, what we uh, uh, persevere in, and will be helpful to you as you encounter those who have doubts about this or 
uh, divergent teachings about this. And I really hope to give a passage preview of the next several verses here in Hebrews because there's a hopeful message um, and one that uh, would be fresh for us since we rehash things from last week, but for sake of time, I think we'll go ahead and save that passage. Uh, we'll have missions conference coming up, and then after a few weeks, we'll come back and look at verses 5 through 9. You might like to meditate on that in your Bible reading this next couple weeks in preparation for our time together there. But I hope as we look at these things that we pay closer heed to what Jesus has given to us It's not a haphazard collection of writings that someone stamped, uh, inspired on, and decided was God's Word. No, the intricate, the cohesive teachings of Scripture are revealed and preserved for us in such a way that we can say this is God's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes, even down to helping us know what would come after this and how to sift it through biblical criteria so that we can always know what God says. But if you're going to know what God says, you have to be in this book. I hope that if you haven't been in here yet today, that you'll go home and spend some time in personal Bible study. That tomorrow morning when you get up, that you will go first to this book or whatever time your mind is most alert and attentive and you're able to get quiet time with the Lord, that you will prioritize that, that we will pay closer attention, give the more earnest heed to what Jesus began to teach and was confirmed through the apostles, those that heard him, and that God bore witness through, to, through miracles, that we would live in here, that we would stand under this, that we would be well-versed in this, that we would submit to this, that we would share this with our families, with those that need Christ, and be able to give that well-informed, scripturally uh, codified answer to those who ask us about a reason for our faith, those who are without, or why we believe what we believe from those who uh, believe otherwise.